Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 895. On this edition of the podcast, the Fangraphs crew gets ready to settle into what could be a strange offseason. First up, David Lorla is joined by Shannon Dreyer of 710 ESPN Seattle. They discuss the Seattle Mariners, who have reasons to feel like they are in an encouraging stage in their rebuild after this season. They took this team from being a bottom three, some years worst farm system in baseball, depending on which ranking you look at, to top three in short order due to trades and some drafts that the experts like. And along those lines, they've got a lot of young pitching coming. After that, Eric Longenhagen and Jason Martinez assess the hot stove, beginning with some interesting qualifying offer and roster decisions. We already know things won't be normal this winter, but there have already been some surprises. The only one that I was really, really surprised at was, was the Brad Hand, and it, and it wasn't just that the Indians didn't want to pay him $10 million. It was that they put him on waivers, and they said, hey, if somebody wants him, right. go for it. $10 million for one of the better left-handed relievers in the game, and they all said, no, we're cool. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. Your memberships and donations allow us to make things like our roster resource off-season tools, such as our free agent tracker. If you haven't checked it out, it is live at Fangraphs.com. We sincerely appreciate your support. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Shannon Dreyer from 710 ESPN Seattle. Shannon, the last time we saw each other was spring training at the Mariners complex, and things, uh, I guess the season didn't really go as we expected it to. (laughs) I think things got crazy right about the time you arrived, if I remember correctly. (laughs) That, that's fairly close to true. I think I was in Phoenix for about a week before I went to your camp. And yeah, things got pretty weird. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of Mariners stuff we can talk about. And I guess before we get to some of the more recent stuff like uh, Rookie of the Year and Gold Glove, the Mariners finished six games under 500 this year. Was that a good season for the Mariners looking at the big picture or was it a disappointment? They were ecstatic with uh, what they saw in 2020. And if you're not familiar with what they've done, two years ago, Jerry Depoto broke the whole thing down. I was faced with the choice of doing what they'd done for so many years and basically just trying to band-aid it and try and, uh, you know, pray and hope to get to one of the wild card spots by adding a big free agent here and there. In a division that was very, very tough, of course, with Houston there and with Oakland that is always so unpredictable and what they can do from year to year. They finally got the approval to tear the thing down, and they teared it pretty much down to the studs. And it wasn't just what uh, they were going to do with the big league team. It was organizationally. They, They wanted to build the farm system up, and they had already had a bunch of systems and processes that were in place that started pretty much the day that DePoto got there. But now it was time to go to work on that big league club. So 2020 was year two. They they broke it all down before 2019. And that's when you saw the big trades. That's when you saw Robinson Cano gone. Uh, That's when you saw players like Jared Kelnick brought over. And they made the commitment to these young players. And it's the development in the minor leagues and making sure they are ready when they bring them up and not trying to rush them and taking the time to get them to where they need to be. And then also taking that time at the big league level when they do break in. And 2020 all along was supposed to be a year to get uh, the first wave of that talent, get their legs under them. And 
If they could have played 162 games, they would have loved to because it was a developmental year. Uh, I think that they felt that they got absolutely everything out of the 60 games that they possibly could have. They saw improvement in the last, say, 40, probably about 40 games, 35 games. They finally beat the Astros, which they were not able to do the year before and barely the year before that. So the young players went home with it in their head that they could beat the Astros, had a good series against the A's as well. And then there were some surprises. Kyle Lewis was better than everybody expected to be and then also could play center field, which nobody thought he would be able to do after the knee surgeries. Justice Sheffield was much better than they thought what he would be. The defense improved by leaps and bounds. The base running improved by leaps and bounds. Marco Gonzalez took another step forward. So in everything that they set out to do, they were going to measure success in 2020 and how well they progressed their young players forward. And there were very few setbacks. So when they look at it, they're not so much looking at a record. They're looking at what they were able to accomplish in moving these players along. And to that end, they really, Jerry DePoto himself, could not be happier with what they saw. You just mentioned Kyle Lewis. He is the odds-on favorite. At least I assume he is the favorite to be named Rookie of the Year on Monday. You mentioned Justice Sheffield as well. I was mildly surprised when I saw that he is not a a finalist. You know, why was he so under the radar this year? I I think it's because, and I think that this, you know, maybe when we look down the line, I guess it'll be kind of destroyed when Kelnick and Rodriguez arrive. But I think maybe the profile of this club is going to be a little bit more of, they're not terribly flashy, but they get the job done. And that was certainly what they saw from the entire rotation. He didn't have any big velo guys. He didn't have, I think Sheffield had the best pitch with his slider and that was the best pitch of the entire rotation. Uh, Your number one guy tops out at about 88. And and I think for Sheffield, I think it was kind of, he doesn't have the big fastball. He strikes out people, but not a ton. I, I just don't think that he was very eye-catching in what he did, yet he was incredibly effective. He added a two-seamer, and that was just remarkable how he did that. He did that in spring training. He came up as a four-seam starter, and uh, before his second-to-last start in spring training, actually I believe it was before his last start, that week they decided to experiment with a two-seamer, and he committed fully, ditched the four-seamer, took the two-seamer into the game, and all of a sudden that spin rate that worked against him trying to throw a four-seamer worked for him throwing the two-seamer, and the next thing you know, that's that's his pitch now. Well, his slider is his pitch, but that is the pitch that he's going to throw the majority of the time, and you rarely even saw the four-seamer anymore. And that really transformed him. So he went from a guy who grew up all along thinking he was going to be that strikeout guy, and he was going to be you know, a guy that had probably mid-'90s stuff, too. He was going to be a pitcher. And he embraced that completely. So I, I just, I, I don't think he was, uh, I don't think the numbers across the board were as big as they could be. I think you're sometimes looking for one that really jumps out, one or two. And I think he was just solid all the way across and, and consistent. And to that, you know, that's who he was. I, I thought he would get, you know, some recognition. I, I'm hoping Marco Gonzalez gets some recognition, a couple of votes. And uh, Cy Young as well because he's kind of the same guy, but I just think they were off the radar because they're they're not there's nothing that really jumps off the page other than that they're going out there and having that success. And sticking with uh, with awards, two Mariners just won Gold Gloves. J.P. Crawford and Evan White, of course. When I look at those names and those numbers, one thing that jumps out is well, great defense. Neither one really hit. How much of a concern is that going forward with both? 
Well, it's nice that we can say that, and it's no longer the popularity con uh, contest with that award, but they are both work in progress with them. And I, I think Crawford in particular has shown, if you look at it, and he did have some success for about the first 20 games of the season to the point where they put him in the leadoff spot, and he was really thriving for a while, and then he, he just kind of regressed back to his normal numbers. But how he gets to those numbers, he doesn't strike out a lot. He has got a, a really uh, good idea of what the strike zone is and, and what he can handle. And I, I think that with him, you're looking at a guy for two seasons in a row, they've talked about they'd like to see him get a little bit stronger. And I think even in a short season, they went through so much that kind of fatigue-wise, I, I think that it almost felt like it was a regular season. I think he fatigued a little bit in balls that he was squaring up early on. He was fouling off later. And, you know, it was great that he would get into, you know, these these long at-bats and pitchers and wear them down a little bit, but he was just missing his pitches. And, and I think that he is a worker, which is why he's taking away that gold glove. And I think that uh, with that gold glove behind him now, I think that he can probably focus a little bit more on that offense. So I, I think that he can. I think that there is a little pop in there. He's one of those guys that when he does get a hold of one, it does travel. But I, I think his strong suit is, is he's not going to strike out. He knows that strike zone. And uh, I, I think it's a matter of putting it together right now and just not missing his pitches. He, he was not good in the zone. Evan White, and this is one of those ones where you look at it, and there are very few in the game that hit the ball harder. You know, his contact numbers were absolutely spectacular, but the strikeouts, obviously, uh, he was among the worst, if not the worst, in baseball, and that's something that has to improve. And I think that when you look at Evan White, this was his first 60 games in the big leagues. There was not an option to send him down. I think had it been a regular season, they were going, to, they were committed. They were going to give him a long look, but I think he would have been given the opportunity to go work on some things and get out of his head a little bit. He didn't kind of get to that spot where he was spinning very often, but it was there a little bit. And that's, that's tough to get out of when the season is so short. So there's a lot to work with with him, and they love the power. And that's not how he came up. He made a swing adjustment a couple of years ago. He was kind of more of a gap-to-gap -gap guy. And now they look at him and, and see a guy that could possibly have monster power. And uh, I think he is still kind of adjusting to what he did with that swing. And when we talked to him toward the end of the season, he said that, you know, he was just grateful he got through the season with what he called his C swing. He said it never felt good this year. So he, he feels like he saw what he needed to see. Uh, he knows the adjustments that he would like to make. We've seen him when he jumps from A ball to double A AA to triple A, there's always been an adjustment period. And he made the jump from double A to the big leagues and there was no time for an adjustment period. So uh, I think he needs to see a little bit more. And now he has seen some and knows what to work toward. And uh, I, I think he can go from there. He's both he and JP Crawford after winning the wards last night, they were back at the facility in Peoria this morning. And you know, they're both working out with uh, the trainer. They're both looking to get a little bigger, a little bit stronger, but they're also going to work with the hitting guys as well. So uh, they're on it and, and we'll see what happens. But uh, you got to like the power potential that you see with Evan White. You just hope you can do something about those strikeouts. How much power potential is there across the board, though, Shannon? When I look at the, you know, the leaderboards, you know, the team leaderboards, I see that the Mariners led the league in stolen bases, but they were second from the bottom in both home runs and slugging. Is that their offensive identity right now, or was that just an anomaly in an odd season? That was your young, your young hitters learning 
right now. And I think that was one of the great things when you looked at this team is I always, this is one that I pulled my hair out for years because you looked at this team and you wondered, well, if they could ever learn how to run the bases or if they could play a more consistent defense, you know, how much are they costing themselves? What are they losing in run production on both ends there? This is kind of the opposite. They've got that foundation. They're controlling the controllables. So I think they build off of that. I think that if you look, you know, where's the power going to come from? Well, clearly Kyle Lewis has it. Tom Murphy was out all year this season behind the plate. He's got it. Cal Raleigh, who is kind of the heir apparent at catcher, has just been hitting the cover off the ball in the instructional development league that they're doing right now down in Arizona. And they've given him that time just to focus on hitting so and he's switch hitter too so that you know there's a lot to, to go to work on there for a catcher but he has been quite good this year was also uh, very good with the bat at the alternate site Evan White I think we're going to see some pop Dylan Moore was the big surprise and he has got definite pop and he made some significant changes in what he was doing at the plate and uh, what we saw from him his consistency, his ability, when he had a game that wasn't so good, it didn't turn into a four-game you know, skid. He, he was able to find something, you know, get something done in a game, do something, and then take it to the next day. But he's got legitimate power as well, and he will be given you know, every chance to take that second-base job at the start of next year. I, I think there's going to be some. You're not going to have it at shortstop. And I think that eventually, you know, we're looking at, we should see Jared Kelnick at some point next year. And (laughs) there's power potential there. And Julio Rodriguez, too, within the next probably year and a half. I don't think that's going to be a huge issue for them down the road. Do you think it's safe to say that Cal Raleigh has a good shot at being the starting catcher next year? And on a related question, is Logan Gilbert likely to slot into that starting rotation? No and no. I I think that we will see both of them at some point, but I think that they will be careful with how they handle them coming out of spring training with, um, you know, Raleigh, he hasn't played above double A. He just, he didn't even play a full season at double A. So I think they're going to want him to definitely get his legs under him a little bit. And then he won't be the starter. They've got Murphy and they also got Torrens right now who they like quite a bit too. So they'll ease him in there. The DH spot will be somewhat open where they can move them, you know, move things around a little bit if they want uh, guys to hit a little bit. But uh, yeah, his arrival date, you know, hopefully is sometime next year. It, it won't be at the beginning. And the same with Gilbert. And the problem there is, just you know they're going to want they're going to have to carefully manage everybody's going to have to manage the innings of the starters next year particularly the young ones you know they they got very few ones that he was just at the alternate site this year so you know he got zero game you know true competitive innings they did play intra-squad games a couple of times a week but that obviously is not the same so uh, they're going to have to monitor the innings and probably cut back the innings a little bit next year to accommodate. So I, I think that they will want to start him in the minors to control that a little bit. And then after that, I believe they will bring him up at some point and they will go with a six-man rotation. So it won't be a problem uh, to insert him into that rotation when the time is right. Yeah, D. Gordon was non-tendered. Why did that happen? And what is the likelihood that we, he will return to Seattle? Yeah, there just really isn't a spot anymore. D, he became one of my favorites I've ever covered in the Mariners Clubhouse. He is an incredible, incredible human being. And, uh, you know, he did not have a starting spot this year because they were committed to playing the young players. And I think that when you look at what he has done as a Mariner, and this, this is one of the tough things, you know, when they went and they got D Gordon and they traded for D Gordon, you know, he was coming off of a, a gold glove season. Uh, I think he had a batting championship too. 
they asked him to play center field. You know, they their analytics guys got together and, and broke everything down and the routes that he ran and speed and everything else. They decided played perfectly in center field. So here you had an accomplished ball player. <laughs> All of a sudden traded to another club and uh, you're going to need to learn this and learn it at the big league level. And that is not an easy thing to do. And he said all the right things, but you know that that was not ideal for him. The experiment did not work out. If I remember correctly, there was an injury and he ended up uh, midway through the season back at second base. And then the next year, he played the majority of the year on a broken toe, two broken toes at one point. So it's just, it's been so tough for him in his, his Mariner time. And then this year, he was told, you know, we love what you do, but we're giving your spot to Shed Long because we got to see what he can do. And in spring training, D, the first time we talked to him, he was pretty clear about that, you know, this. I, I hope these kids understand that these things aren't just handed to them. You know, this is not how I was given my job years ago. This is not how anybody else in this clubhouse was. There was a little bristling at how that happened. But with all of that said, uh, he never took it out on anyone around him. He was a perfect teammate. He was instrumental in that clubhouse and leading them through many of the challenges of this season. Dylan Moore credits him with the, the swing change that he made that in large part led to the numbers he put up at the plate this year. Uh, they live close by in Florida, and Dylan spent the shutdown at Dee's house in his blow-up hitting cage and working with Dee. And Dylan knew he was strong, but thought he needed to increase his contact skills if he was going to do anything. And Dee Gordon knows a thing or two about contact skills and helped him out with that. So, uh, you know, just an incredible teammate, an incredible team player. But I think on most clubs, he, he probably would have gone in and been a starter all three years. And instead, it was just nothing but adversity that was thrown his way, which, you know, it was kind of tough to watch because he is just an incredible player, an incredible person. And you do nothing but hope for the best for him. No, Mitch Hanniger, I think, would qualify in much the same way as a quality teammate. And he's also a very good hitter when he is healthy. From what you've heard, what is his status going into next year? They believe he's going to be ready for spring training, and we know very little about Mitch Hanniger. We uh, you know, heard about the two surgeries, and he was in spring training for just a little while, and I kind of talked to some medical experts. He, of course, had the core surgery two years ago, and then just when it appeared he was about back from that, had a, a disc problem and had to have a back surgery. And while the back surgery sounded like the scary thing, from everything I heard, that was more of a microsurgery. And that should have been something that was easier to come back from. And when I talked to people, they said core injuries are tougher because the rehab is so much tougher. One misstep and you can set yourself back, you know, a month easily. Throw in a shutdown and he's in California, couldn't get to physical therapy centers. So I I think it was kind of tough for him to come back. But from what we understand, He's healthy, but it doesn't sound like there was very much of any baseball activity for him this year. He was in Seattle for a while, not at the facility. He couldn't be, but uh, I think he was seeing trainers off-site in the Seattle area. And then we were told he's going to kind of have a, quote, normal off-season, but probably not restart baseball activities until January. So uh, I'm going to be very curious to see what we see in spring training, but... They said they do expect him to be ready to go at the beginning, and they do expect him to be in right field on opening day. Yeah, let's close, Shannon, with another bigger picture question. Uh, you know, you're very tuned in to what's been, what the team has been doing for years now. 
what has been happening behind the scenes in recent years that maybe a lot of casual fans aren't aware of? Well, the team is completely different than it was two years ago. So there's a massive rebuild. And uh, they took this team from being a bottom three, some years worst farm system in baseball, depending on which ranking you look at, to top three in short order due to trades and some drafts that the experts like. And along those lines, they've got a lot of young pitching coming. You know, Logan Gilbert, we will see next year. And I think that it's sounding like that he's exceeding expectations in what he has done. And when you talk to him, he's very cerebral about what he does. He's added a change up. Well, he'll be the first. And uh, George Kirby, who was drafted a couple of years ago, highly regarded as well. Uh, Sam Carlson, he's just 20 years old, three innings into his big league uh, career. He was drafted out of high school, second rounder, tore his uh, UCL and was out. He's just now starting to come back as well. And I kind of in the back of my mind wonder, is he kind of the Kyle Lewis uh, of the pitching department, the guy that you forgot? You know, Kyle Lewis was off the radar for a while because of the injury. And I kind of wonder if, you know, maybe you have that in Sam Carlson. And then they've got just a slew of young relief arms that were not up this year that, uh, you know, bring bring the big velo and uh, feature different stuff, which is kind of like how it's kind of how they like to come at guys. But it's a young club right now. And it's a club. And this is one of the neat things to see is that. When DePoto set out to redo things, he wasn't looking at just doing it for one run. It's He's concentrated on every level of the minors. And in the minors, it is, it's an incredibly organized and organizational type system. Everything is done the same at every level. Training staffs, training rooms. The Dominican Academy looks like the facility in Peoria. They have their own language that they use and and how they teach things. It's there's a, it's a mariner's way. I think you could look at it that way. Uh, the instruction that's given and they try and stay on the cutting edge of everything that they possibly can do. And something that they've done in recent years is with ball players going to all the performance facilities in the off seasons. They're like, well, why don't we try and provide that? So, uh, you know, their gas camp and which is basically you know a camp that's created to to work with the pitcher sometimes doing velocity, but a lot of the things that you would get at, say, a driveline or something like that it is done in this camp at the facility. They've got a hitter's equivalent. They've got game calling you, where during the offseason they get all of the catchers on a conference call with Dan Wilson and the catching coordinator, and they talk through situations and things like that. It's um, just a complete system from the Dominican all the way up to the big leagues. And uh, when they were starting to build and starting to come up with this language and philosophies and whatnot, the word was, yeah, that's for the guys that are coming up. You can't do that with big leaguers. Well, now they've grown their big leaguers, so they've all come up together, and they had a special focus to keep that first core group together at AA in 2019. So most of the guys didn't play at AAA. They just kind of jumped straight to the bigs together. And when you see them together, because one of the big questions is, how are they going to do this without veterans? How are they going to learn anything? Uh, they're a cohesive unit, this this young group is. And uh, they kind of look to each other. Kyle Seeger's helped out with that. Marco Gonzalez has helped out with the leadership. But these guys came to Seattle almost as a team. And so watching them develop together, watching them go through the same things together, they kind of lean on each other a little bit. And you see that. So it's been fascinating 
to watch. And it's just the first group. You know, Kyle Lewis is part of that. Evan White is part of that. Justice Sheffield, Justin Dunn, part of that. The next wave will have your bigger stars. The two, you know, biggest stars in the organization right now are not up yet. And Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez should probably see Cal Raleigh and Logan Gilbert in that group as well. And then they've got a group behind that, mostly younger pitchers. But uh, it's it's been an incredible kind of turnaround and how they have been able to bring so much talent into the organization in such a short time. And now going forward, what you're seeing is these guys get their feet wet and, and starting to go. And everybody, you know, it was a tough, very painful teardown. I think everybody's aware that the Mariners have not been to the postseason in a while, a couple decades by my calculation. Uh, it's been tough on the fans, but they were starting to really kind of get into, oh, these guys are Mariners. They came up through the system. And you see Kyle Lewis up for Rookie of the Year, and there's excitement about that. You saw the two gold glovers and there's excitement about that. and But they want to know, when are they going to arrive? And how did 2020 and just 60 games impact the plan of when they're supposed to return to contention? And DePoto, at the end of the season, you know, said he expects that they should be competitive next year, that they should be able to compete for the postseason. Doesn't mean they're going to go, but they should be able to compete. And I think the thought probably is, is that if it is expanded playoffs again next year, they should be one of those teams. So brighter days ahead for the Seattle Mariners. That was Shannon Dreyer from 710 ESPN Seattle. I am David Morella, and we'll move on to the next segment. Welcome, Fangraphs audio listeners. This is the voice of lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from Tempe, Arizona. I'm joined by Jason Martinez. How's it going, Jason? This is going very well. The offseason is here. That that always makes me happy. We had 11 minor league signings today, all by one team, but <laughs> some recognizable names of the Mets uh, picking up Malik Smith, Jose Peraza, Arodis Vizcaino. I'm sure yep. some, some of you remember that guy, former closer. So, yeah, I'm good. That's what we wanted to do today is there have been a bunch of relatively minor transactions for the most part that – you know, there's not enough meat on the bone for any one of them to necessarily write a post, but we can lump all of them together into one conversation and publish it as a podcast segment. So that's what we're going to do. I was, um, was at an instructional league game today talking about some of these deals, specifically all the, the moves that the Mets made today. We're recording this on 11-4. Uh, I'm curious, yeah, you mentioned Malik Smith and Jose Peraza. What's with that one random, really excellent Malik Smith year that he had? I was kind of fooled by that. I thought that he had a chance to be a real sort of impact everyday guy at the top of the lineup after that one big year in Tampa. Yeah, I, I think that's it's just a reminder of, of how, how small the window is for a lot of these guys. And you go from being a young guy with upside, right? Malik Smith, he's traded a couple times and you know he's not a top prospect, but he's a guy that's, that's interesting enough where... You give him a chance. If he struggles, okay, well, he's young. We'll get another shot. You know, eventually he gets another chance and he has a good year. And then everybody goes, whoa, this is a, this is a guy, you know. Next year he's not very good and he gets DFA'd by the Mariners. He's, what, 27, 28 now. And all of a sudden he's out. he has to take a minor league deal the first week of free agency. And I think that's the same case with with somebody like Peraza. It's just like he had an he he had probably his last opportunity where he he went to a team and they were like, oh, this guy's we're going to give him every day at bats, 
at second base. He has some upside. He's had some success before. Give him a shot. It didn't work out. All of a sudden, he's kind of a nobody out there right now and just waiting. To, you know, he has to wait for his next chance, his next opportunity. For a lot of these guys, it might never come. Yeah, of the guys who the Mets picked up today, Peraza is the one who had the highest prospect pinnacle, I guess, is is how I'd go about putting it. And I don't recall being like top 100 high on him and more had him in like the utility infield bucket. He was just pushed out of at bats in LA and then was sent to Cincinnati and things just never really materialized. But he still has interesting peripherals. He did have like a 14 home or 23 steal season for the Reds in 2018. And he was a two and a half war player. So another guy like Smith who had the one good year. The other guys that the Mets added, Mitchell Tolman, who they signed as a, a minor league free agent and invited him to spring training. He's the second baseman, like lefty stick, hit in college at the University of Oregon. And it's just one of those types of players who has clear utility, like the lefty hitting guy who can play second base, maybe one other or two other infield spots in left field. You know, there's a clear path to utility for a guy like that. So watch for Mitchell Tolman to do that for the Mets. And then they also signed Oscar de la Cruz, who had an argument to be a top 100 prospect for a while and maybe was in some places when he was with the Cubs. And he's had injuries and he's had, was it PEDs or drugs? I forget specifically what it was. He had a suspension of some kind and was not quite the same the last year and a half-ish, where like at Pinnacle, he was 93-96 with a comfortably plus slider. He was like 20 or 21 years old and had, you know, that prototypical in the eating frame and then the injuries and the suspension, et cetera, et cetera. And now he's on a minor league deal with the Mets. Do you think it signals anything about like the economics of the game with some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today signals that this off season is going to be slow to materialize, that teams are going to be cautious about spending money and probably actively be shedding payroll. Does the fact that the Mets have a new owner with a monster net worth who is not coming off of a, a summer in which he quote unquote, lost a bunch of money without a gate. Do you think that this is a signal that the Mets might be one of the teams who scoops up all these guys who get non-tendered and whatnot because of new lucrative ownership? I think if we knew what their guarantee was, especially the guys that, that we, that we mentioned, the, the former big leaguers, what, you know, if they're, if they got a $2 million guarantee, if they make the team, that would be a good reason to say, all right, I'm not going to wait around. I'm going to take this, this minor league deal. So it's hard to know with, with these kind of guys because it is a little bit surprising to see former big leaguers who, even though they had a bad year, and then with Vizcaino, he missed the whole year with a shoulder surgery. So who knows what he's going to be. So I, I think it was pretty obvious that he was going to get a minor league deal. So I, I don't think it says too much yet, you know, unless, you know, behind the scenes, I think a lot of teams would say, oh, yeah, I'd love to get Malik Smith on a minor league deal. I'd love to get Arodis Vizcaino on a minor league deal. Um, so there, you think there'd be a lot of competition. So maybe the Mets step up early and say, well, we'll give you a bigger guarantee than if you make the roster. Because you think like, you know, with these guys, well, why would I sign a minor league deal on, on November 4th? I can wait a month. Maybe something will come. Maybe, maybe interest will pick up. I can wait till February and maybe somebody gets hurt and then, then there's more interest. But yeah, a little surprising, but I'm trying not to look too much into it. I think we know that the offseason is going to be different. I know we think yeah. we can pretty much assume that it's going to be slow. It's not going to be a lot of money thrown around. 
what were some of the really like the options being declined or players released or any of the transactions so far that have stuck out as strong indicators to you? I think for me, the the only one that I was really, really surprised at was, was the Brad Hand. And it, and it wasn't just that the Indians didn't want to pay him $10 million. It was that they put him on waivers and they said, hey, if somebody wants him, right. go for it. $10 million for one of the better left-handed relievers in the game. And they all said, no, we're cool. That was That was a bit surprising. And I think... You can make a case for, you know, there's a lot of big names in that group. Charlie Morton, John Lester, Chris Archer, Colton Wong, Adam Eaton, Ryan Braun, a couple really solid relievers, you know, with David Phelps, Sergio Romo, Darren O'Day, and even and Brandon Kinsler was a, a little bit of a surprise. Only yeah. four, four million bucks. You figure the, Mar the Marlins don't have a lot in their payroll. Jed Jerko. Jed Jerko as well. But I mean, $4 million, I don't know. I, I think even, even if it was a, a normal offseason, a lot of these guys would have been right on the cusp. Like maybe you keep him, you know, Jerko is, he wouldn't go in, into the season as anybody's starting first baseman, I don't think. I think you'd consider him like, he's gonna play against lefties, he gives me protection at first, you can DH, you can play a little bit of third, but at $4 million, even in a normal off season, I think it would be, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he had that option declined. With Kinsler, you know, and with Hand as well, I, I think you can make a case that Teams also knowing that other teams aren't going to be aggressive. I think you can go, well, I don't want to pay Brandon Kinsler $4 million. I don't think any other team is going to give him $4 million and and maybe we'll try to re-sign him at three point five or $3 million. And also, the Marlins have, have a bit of a roster crunch, a 40-man roster crunch. I think they have two open spots now. And they just have so many young players, you know, without looking at who they have to add to the 40-man. I'm guessing that they're going to need to free up some spots as it is. So there's also a chance that Kinsler says, hey, I want to come back. I would love to just sign it for a million. That would have been fine. And the Marlins say, well, let's let's wait a month or two. Let's, let's get past the Rule 5 draft, and then we'll make space. And maybe something will come up. But definitely, like I said, I don't want to look too much into it because I know as a group, everybody was kind of like, oh, my God, it's going to be a terrible offseason. Everybody's getting their options declined. But – you know, for for me, it was only only the the hand move was was the obvious one, or was like, oh, that's that's interesting. But but on the other hand, you have with the qualifying offers, Kevin Gossman got a qualifying offer, which yeah. is also a big surprise that the Giants are like, yeah, we'll give you nineteen million dollars for for a year. I mean, you probably can can speak better to this as as far as what what kind of upside he has, even though he's not a young guy. But I think him going into free agency and teams going, wow, that that guy can be this even though he hasn't been able to put it together for a full season he can be this and he yeah gaussman's interesting that changeup is still such an impact pitch on its own and if he's healthy and throwing hard then you're looking at a guy who's got two of those and you know the organization that he he sort of fell victim to an era of orioles player development that was just not kind to its pitching prospects and there's going to be attrition across the board with that kind of stuff, right? Like you remember the the competitive Royals teams from earlier this century had an incredible array of starting pitching talent in the farm system and very little of it actually like bared fruit. And, and we've seen that now recently with Atlanta as well. But the rate at which the Jake Arrietas and Dylan Bundys and, and Kevin Gaussmans did not quite get there early in their career in Baltimore. Like I, I do think that 
having watched a bunch of Gaussman late in the year as the Giants were making a playoff push, that especially because of that changeup, that he's for real. He's not like, I wouldn't consider him a workhorse mid-rotation starter type. He's more of like a two times through the order and some change type of guy. But I think he's going to miss a lot of bats over 120 inning or so workload maybe. And yeah, that could be really, really valuable. People just need pitching, period, which is has just been a consistent thing, It's, it's especially as the rosters expanded. And COVID, of course, is its own variable. But especially as rosters expanded, it's just most teams use it on pitching. And so what constitutes the bottom of your big league roster from a pitching standpoint is just much lower now than it was two years ago even. So there's more room for teams to play on those margins. There are reasons for teams to take chances on guys like Arodis Vizcaino, who's been hurt, shoulder stuff for the last two years, I think, and Gaussman, who was hurt before the Giants acquired him, and Blake Trinan, who was hurt and non-tendered and signed for $10 million. Like, if you can, If you can afford to, I think taking a flyer on talented pitching can yield you either a really good pitcher for a suddenly competitive team or somebody who you can trade for something that your team can use long-term for a player who can be under team control for a while, maybe beyond the next competitive Orioles team or rebuilding team X, Y, or Z. Yeah, and when you mentioned hand, yeah, like I was surprised. Philly needs bullpen help badly. And to have a guy like that just sort of sitting there for $10 million, I, I did think that that was a fit. Even a team that's just cash rich like the Dodgers would be like, sure, why not? But the Phillies did end up making one move as I I want to take us through some some more of these minor transactions. They ended up claiming Johan Quezada off of waivers from Miami. Quezada is kind of interesting. He's a big like 6'8 or something like that. Hard-throwing righty who was originally in the Twins organization was hurt, was behind developmentally as far as his age relative to his level. But when he threw, it was like really hard. And, he, you know, he has this sort of ridiculously big NBA small forward type of frame. And so he's, you know, just sort of an arm strength guy who hasn't really gotten an opportunity yet. It'll be interesting to see him now get an opportunity with a third organization in the last just a couple of years. So that is one. The Diamondbacks released Kevin Crone, who, you know, is one of these corner only upper level performer types who has never really been on a prospect list, but has put up big minor league numbers, some of it as park related or league related. He's the type of guy who might go to Korea or Japan and, and do something interesting there. Let's see. Who else? Did you have any other of these like minor waiver claims or you know a um, couple that come to mind nick tropiano who's a journeyman yeah he's made appearances in the big leagues like six out of the last seven seasons he's been dfa'd a bunch of times but got a chance with the pirates late in the season and and was really was really good he had a 1.116 era 1.15 era in in 15 innings good K9 ratio. He had uh, close to 11 Ks per nine, only two walks. doesn't have overpowering stuff, but it's it's a guy that, so the Mets, Mets claimed him and Jacob Barnes. So you're talking about that bullpen depth and somebody like Tropiano who can, who can start, he can relieve, and he has an option remaining, which is, which is valuable because you only have so many spots and, and we don't know if, if uh, they're going to expand the rosters again if they were to stick with the rules that they were going to use 
pre-COVID in 2020, it was going to be 26-man rosters with a 13-pitcher limit, which basically gives you eight relief pitchers. You know, to give you an example, a team like the Padres has, they're just, they're, their bullpen is stacked, but they have about nine or 10 guys that they can't option, either have a guaranteed contract or they're out of options. They got guys like Dan Altavia, Taylor Williams, maybe Javi Guerra, who, who, if they don't make it, make the roster, and if the rosters aren't expanded again, they're going to have to be traded, most likely, or you know, DFA'd at the end, end of camp. And so you pick up a guy like like Jacob Barnes is a guy who, who pitched pretty well for the Angels last year, a veteran, and you bring him to camp, and he, you know, is he worthy of a 40-man spot? For now, they have they have the space, but he's also a guy who they can try to get through waivers later on because once he's off the 40-man, they're much more valuable to you because you don't have to worry about how many options he has remaining. He can just sit in AAA till you really need him. A guy like Tropiano, even if you keep him on the 40-man, he can, he can go to the minors and you can bring him up when you need him. Those were a couple moves that stood out to me as a team just, just trying to build bullpen depth. And then Michael Perez, who was uh, on the Rays, Got a lot of playing time with yeah. the Rays this year. Didn't didn't do much with the bat, but guy who was in the World Series got some good experience. And he goes to Pittsburgh on a waiver claim, and sort sort of a a crowded situation at the moment when they got or actually no no longer they have Luke Mail and and John Ryan Murphy who both were removed from the forty man and I believe are free agents now. So it's Jacob Stallings and Michael Perez who could be a pretty good pretty good lefty righty combination there. I think yeah the general. The general current of the talent is going to flow downhill based on team success and record. So you will see the pitchers who can't quite make the roster of some of these competitive teams with a lot of good pitching are going to trickle down most of the time to the teams that have struggled to accumulate pitching depth. And the same, that's basically true at, at all positions. And yeah, it is now, it's inter- also interesting to sort of start to watch how teams behave related to acquiring catching and positionless players, basically, in advance of what I anticipate will be electronic strike zones at some point in the next two years, probably. And the same is probably true of the universal DH. Like, if we come out of the next CBA, I think it's likely that we'll have both of those things. I was at an instructional league game this week where they were using an automated strike zone with like a disembodied voice calling balls and strikes instantaneously based on the, the Hawkeye technology. So yeah, Pittsburgh's now got Michael Perez, they've got Jacob Stallings, and they have Andrew Susack. Don't sleep on that guy. He's got power, especially as maybe some of the way we are looking at catchers defensively starts to shift. It'll be interesting to see how some of these guys start to shake out. Another good example of the talent flowing downhill for me is Carlos Sanabria who the Royals claimed off waivers from the Astros. The Astros just have have so much good pitching. And we saw so much of it this year, rookie pitching. And Sanabria was in that mix in the lower minors with Anoli Paredes and Luis Garcia and Christian Javier. Another one of these piggyback four-pitch type guys. He is not nearly as athletic as Javier and Paredes. Doesn't have like that long-term body built for pitching for 10 or 15 years or whatever like that. But his stuff is good. He's, he doesn't throw as hard, but it's still four viable big league pitches with, you know, relievery command. But I think he absolutely makes the Royals next year. I think that was a shrewd pickup by them. We saw Atlanta sign Abraham Almonte to a big league contract. 
32-year-old, left-handed hitting outfielder, excellent clubhouse guy, the type of guy who has hopped around his upper-level depth for uh, teams over the last several years. He is sort of now, I guess, in that mix, like, you know, the Marcakis role, the Inciarte role, those guys are sort of on their way out. Pache is on his way up. Austin Riley's probably going to play some some corner outfield and no more Marcelo Zuna, maybe. So he bolsters some of the, the outfield depth there in Atlanta. He had Max Schrock, a Carson Sestouli favorite from the days of yore, claimed off of waivers from the Cardinals. I'm sure that he advocated for Schrock in Toronto, did uh, Carson. I'm, I can like almost guarantee that. You know, lefty stick who can play second base. Again, mentioned that at the top. Those guys just have clear paths to utility. And then interestingly, two, exa- two examples maybe that don't fit the this talent flows downhill is Minnesota scooping up two pitchers, Brandon Waddell from Pittsburgh and Ian Gabot from the Rangers. Gabot was one of those roster casualties of the Rays who, as they start to get more expensive and hit ARB, they move on from. He had been with Texas for a little while. And then Waddell, Waddell has typically been just outside of prospect list designation for me. He's like your pitchability lefty from the University of Virginia, swingman type, you know, fifth starter, long relief. The high end of the evaluations on him historically have been like, yeah, this is a low variance 40. It's like a one war arm. And I'm a little lower than that. I think it's more of like an up down, you know, spot starter depth type, but that's your range. And it's interesting that Minnesota is bolstering that because they're entering another offseason where a bunch of the pitching they signed last year is hurt or, you know, was on a one-year deal anyway. And so they have to go out and do some version of that again. And they've started in the bargain bin. Is there anybody else you wanted to to mention before we split? Uh, I think I think you pretty much covered, we got through that. I think we got through the whole list. There was a couple early, early in camp, another hard-throwing guy, Domingo Tapia, claimed by, yep. who was briefly with, with the Red Sox, uh, goes to the Mariners. The Mariners are always claiming guys seems like a different guy every other day and then then they'll lose them they've traded like basically they swapped gerson batista for tapia yeah and they also lost art warren and taylor gilbo off waivers gilbo to arizona Art warren to texas a guy who was one of the he was a prospect a relief prospect a couple years back i think he had tommy john surgery so he's been out so this is how some of these guys come out of nowhere you know it's it's like if you were paying attention two years ago and you go, Art, Art Warren, he's, he could be a guy. He's, he's close to helping out in the majors out of, out of the bullpen and gets a couple chances and he looks okay. But then Tommy John surgery and you don't hear from him for a year and a half. And then some other team picks him up and then you go, who the heck is this guy? Where'd he come from? Throwing 97, you know, like, right. I love that aspect of, of it. I pay really close attention to this stuff. So may, maybe I'm not a, as surprised, but I also like it, it is cool to see. Oh wow, I remember this guy. It was kind of a not a big deal, but he was a guy. He was just, he was expecting to help out to to help out this team, and all of a sudden, he's, you know, he's one of those guys that that has one or two good years where he's he's like your 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 money guy in the seventh inning. And again, the window for these guys is so, it can be so so short that like. It might only, you know, their career might just be one good year or a half a good season and that's it. And then they're up and down and constantly looking for that that next opportunity. Well, thanks for joining us on another Fangraphs audio segment. I think this is 
this is the type of thing that you and I particularly well suited to knock back and forth for 20 minutes. So I assume that at some point this offseason, there will be enough of these minor transactions for Jason and I to hop on the pod again and, and go through them. But thanks for listening, and we will see you again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program and would like to help us out a little, you can tell a friend about the show. Or even better, buy them a Fangraphs membership. Your support helps us do everything we do. Take care of yourself, and thanks for listening.